Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to this morning's scripture, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. And if you would like to follow uh, along using the Pew Bible, this passage may be found on page 599. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah 40, beginning with verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Each valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry! And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lamb in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of the, of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Indeed, our God, the grass withers, the flower fades, but your word, O oh God, stands forever. And so, our God, we stand there today and ask that you would speak to us the truth of your word, that we might understand and know you better, and that we might change, be changed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you are at all familiar with the classical masterpiece, Handel's Messiah, then the words that were read today perhaps sparked that theme or melody in your ear. The oratorio uses only words from Scripture to unfold the story of God's Messiah, spanning both testaments, 
from the earliest words of Job all the way to the end in John's revelation, looking to the future of Messiah's work. Well, following the orchestra's overture at the very beginning, the whole work begins with the lone voice of the tenor soloist stepping forward and singing the opening words of Isaiah chapter 40. In classical music written for the theater, the tenor voice is known as the hero, the heroic voice. Well, certainly this was not lost on Handel in his setting of this music. He wanted to depict the heroic strength and compassion of the Messiah with these words of hope. And so we too come to our text today with hope and faith that the Lord will speak comfort and love to us here, now, in this moment. Bible scholars generally agree that uh, Isaiah's prophecy is divided into three sections. Some go as far as to say that there are three different books. And that in these three sections, there is... There are different eras in Israel's journey through judgment and captivity. The first section, which we've been in up until today, deals with the judgment upon Israel by Assyria and subsequently the judgment upon Judah by Babylon, ultimately leading away into captivity. The second section, chapters 40 through 55, is a future prophetic word from Isaiah, 150 years into the future, to the Babylonian captives as they were there and as they were looking for hope. Isaiah provides words of comfort to those that are in exile, and he let them know that the, the return was coming. It wouldn't be long until they returned to their homeland. It's also in this section where Isaiah actually names Cyrus the Persian as the leader who would provide for their return to Jerusalem after conquering Babylon. He also predicts the Lord's suffering servant who is identified in the New Testament as Jesus Christ. Most of you are very familiar with the words of Isaiah 53 that remarkably predict and tell us about the crucifixion and the work on the cross that Jesus did on our behalf. And then finally in chapters 56 through 66, these speak to those who have then returned from exile back to the promised land from Babylon. So today, we're jumping into the very first words of the second section, that prophecy directed to the captives in Babylon who were awaiting their release from bondage. In this passage we have incredible, amazing words of encouragement about the glorious future of God's covenant people. And in these promises to the captives, we can also see a future fulfillment of these in Jesus Christ, God's Messiah. At the end of the first section of Isaiah, just before we get to today's passage in these final chapters of that first section, we have the account of King Hezekiah trusting the Lord for Jerusalem's miraculous deliverance from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians. The king's subsequent illness and recovery. 
And then chapter 39 ends with Hezekiah, the king of Judah, hearing about the ultimate and impending fall of the capital city. It was coming. And he was told that all of Israel's wealth and Hezekiah's children, along with many others, would be taken away into captivity into Babylon and away from their homeland as spoils of war. Many of Hezekiah's sons would be made eunuchs in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. This was a common practice of conquering kings to prevent any future births from their rival conquered kings. What depressing news this must have been. What about the promised line of Messiah in the line of David the king? Was that coming to an end? Were the promises of God null and void now? The judgment had come? Would God go back on his word? And then, out of that, come the wonderful words of chapter 40 that have been read to us this morning. Directed to those future captives in Babylon. And in these words, we see the dawn of love which speaks comfort and forgiveness to God's people. It opens simply, comfort. And then for emphasis, it's repeated. Comfort, my people, says your God. God had not abandoned the children of Abraham, whom he had made a promise to. No, far from it. In this brief statement, God reassures them that they are his people, and that he is still their God. Comfort my people, says your God. God was, is, and will forever be in relationship with his people. Nothing can break that. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is amazing comfort in knowing that God will never, ever let us go. We're, we're not in control of that relationship status. He is. It isn't dependent on our faithfulness. It is rock solid in his faithfulness. God gives a directive here to the prophets. It's a plural imperative, and so this command is is to more than just Isaiah. It's to all of God's prophets. You, or as we like to say here in the South, y'all need to comfort folks with the good news. And so this is our joyful privilege as well, to speak comfort and forgiveness to the world around us. The prophet continues, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The phrase there translated, speak tenderly, literally reads, speak to the heart. Most often when this phrase is used in the Old Testament, it is used in the context of a lover wooing back one who has run away or who's gone away from them, winning back the object of their affection, 
we might say that we're tugging on the heartstrings of someone. And at this point in their history, Jerusalem is a deserted pile of rubble with all of its citizens being held in captivity. Jerusalem here is not so much the geographic city that's being talked about, but rather the people of God themselves. So my paraphrase then goes something like this. You prophets, servants of the Most High God, it's time. Judgment is over. And it's time to bring words of great comfort to my people. Speak directly to their hearts with an aim of winning them back with my unfailing love. Boldly tell them that their suffering is over and that I have forgiven their horrible sins. Judgment is complete and it's time to come home. What a wonderful message for the people of God. And what a wonderful message for us today. As those on the other side of Jesus' first coming, we understand that forgiveness of sins was purchased for us on the cross. Not only for us, but for the Old Testament saints as well. How much more can we be comforted by these words from Isaiah, knowing that reality? That we've been granted pardon for our sins, even as we have expressed and prayed and confessed today. For the dawn of love speaks comfort and forgiveness to us. In the next section, we have a new voice. This voice isn't just speaking. This voice is crying out. crying out for stability in a crooked and perverse generation and for permanence in a temporary and false world. Last week, you might remember if you were here that we saw in chapter 35 this idea of a highway emerging in the desert for the people of God to be led back to the promised land, to return to God. But the highway spoken of here in chapter 40 is a different highway It's a highway for God. All four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, quote verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The gospel writers' quotes are in reference to John the Baptist's ministry, his prophetic ministry about Jesus John identifies himself as this voice that's crying out. In the days before the printing press and when illiteracy was widespread, news had to be passed on verbally from town to town. The town crier would stand in the middle of the town square, ringing a bell, uttering those words, Hear ye, hear ye, with the news of the day. John stood like a town crier, proclaiming the good news of his day. He was the one to prepare the way of the Lord. The Messiah is coming. Are you ready to receive him? In the Matthew account, John goes on to say that in this context, 
his listeners should bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The preparation for the coming of the Lord involves repentance. Sin is an obstacle that needs to be turned away from. For without repentance, God's people cannot be in right relationship with him. And the call of the gospel in our lives is to turn from our sin and turn to God in new obedience to him. How appropriate then that we consider this as we come to the Lord's table today. Question 171 of the larger catechism instructs us well. They that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are, before they come, to prepare themselves by examining themselves for their being in Christ, of their sins and wants, examining themselves of the truth and measure of their knowledge, faith, repentance, examining themselves of their love for God and the brethren, charity to all men, forgiving those that have done them wrong, examining themselves of their desires after Christ and of their new obedience, and by renewing the exercise of these graces by serious meditation and fervent prayer. Jesus invites us to dine with him. He made a way for us to commune with him. He's smoothed over the rough places. He's made them plain. He's raised every valley and lowered every mountain, every obstacle. And in giving us this gift of repentance that we might prepare to come to him, even as he comes to us. This is the good news of Christmas If you belong to him, then gladly, joyfully, repent of your sin and enjoy fellowship with him. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, then reflect on the truth of the gospel. Turn from your sin, repent, and turn to Christ. Believe that Jesus can forgive you and trust him completely and wholly with all that you are as Lord and Savior. And in knowing Jesus, The glory of God is revealed to his people. That glory appeared that night in a stable in Bethlehem. It appears today in the coming of his kingdom in the hearts and lives of his people. And one day, it will be apparent to every person on the planet when he comes in his fullness to rule and to reign in perfect righteousness. And all flesh shall see it together. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Additionally, at the dawn of love, a voice cries out for permanence. In a temporary and false world, in verses 6 through 8, we see the instability of the world that we live in and the out of control flightiness of our own sinful hearts, at least mine. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. This is not only a reference to our decaying bodies, although certainly that is part of what's meant here. 
but it also includes the fickleness of our entire being. Even the beauty that the flower provides is momentary. It fades into ugliness. Is there anything worse than a drooping, dying bouquet of flowers that has long extended its stay in our homes? There's no permanence in the fallen human condition. But interestingly enough, this is exactly what we look for in love, isn't it? We want to find a love that is constant and permanent. Something we can count on. And we project this desire on other people, whether in romantic relationships or family relationships between parent and child or siblings, or even in deep friendships, we project this. But Isaiah reminds us that people are like grass. There's no permanence there. And if we're honest, we certainly know that to be true of ourselves. I'm fickle. My love for others is often selfish. It ebbs and flows. It's unstable. So if I know that about myself, why would I expect others to fulfill the love that I'm looking for that only God can fulfill? We need something sure and steady for our hope and security in the love of God. We can't rely on our own feelings and thoughts. They'll deceive us. And so the Lord, in his grace and love and favor to his people, gives us his forever sure word, his promises. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. His promises to us are sure and eternal. His word is being proclaimed even now. And we can hang our very souls on these words of love from God that Isaiah has written for us. And we can also look to the word of promise that's represented and sealed to us in the sacrament. As we come to the table to fellowship with him, to feed upon his love and grace, we can know that he is here. And we can be assured of his everlasting love. This is the, one of the beautiful parts of corporate worship when we gather together. It brings together word and sacrament as means of grace in our lives. If you're looking for help in your Christian walk, here it is. The preached word and the table of fellowship. And as we're strengthened by his love, then we are enabled to love one another and Christ. Listen to the apostle's words from 1 Peter chapter 1 and see how he quotes this passage from Isaiah in the context. Beginning in verse 22, Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then he quotes from our passage. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word 
is the good news that was preached to you. We need to be reminded of God's incredible love for us as we read and hear his word today and as we share in this holy meal. May that renew our love for one another as brothers and sisters providing for our unity in him. And the dawn of love also heralds strength and compassion. Looking at verse 9 again. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The call to Zion, the people of God, the church, is to lift our voice with strength, heralding the good news. When a royal wedding takes place, one of the very first things that happens just before the ceremony is the fanfare of the herald trumpets. Those long trumpets with the banners hanging down, all lined up in the cathedral, heralding a brass fanfare, announcing the arrival of the bride. She's here. She's ready to process to her groom. And she's ready to be received in love. We who have received the invitation from the lover of our souls, our groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, we must herald the good news to those yet to be enfolded into the union. There is no timidity here. There's no shyness. These are trumpet blasts. We must cry out the simple message of the gospel. Behold your God. Here he is. This is the one that your hearts long for. He has come to earth as a babe in a manger, and he's coming back as a warrior groom to reclaim what is rightfully his. And his arm of might rules for him. He brings with him all those that his father has given him and the restoration of his good creation. True love demonstrates both strength and compassion. These qualities are not opposites, as we might imagine, but they go hand in hand. This mighty one who rules with his arm also uses that very arm to scoop up his little lambs that they might lean against his chest in rest and love. What a glorious picture of our shepherd king. The mighty warrior king gently leads the most needy and vulnerable among us with tender compassion. 
One of the ways that we herald the good news of the gospel is in coming to the table, isn't it? Apostle Paul tells us that in doing this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. What do you need today? What are you looking for? Why are you here? Love has dawned upon the world. And that love is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. The love which has come is a person. A person who is seeking those who would be in an intimate relationship with him. And he is a person who has the infinite resources of heaven at his disposal to give to us. Because he's God. If you're searching for someone to satisfy the deepest needs of love in your life, then don't look any further. He has come. If you know him as Savior, then his sure promise to you is that he will never leave you or forsake you. So what are we to do when we come to the Lord's table? As we gather around in fellowship, what is this family meal about? Well, certainly if you haven't dealt with the sin in your life, then don't make a mockery of the table by pretending everything's okay and joining in the family meal. Refrain from eating today and pray that the Lord would grant you the gift of repentance and would restore you to fellowship. If you do not know him as your Lord and Savior, then don't eat judgment upon yourself. Instead, watch and pray. But if you've done the work of preparation, heeding the message of John the Baptist, to prepare the way, to repent, to turn from your sin, then by all means, accept the forgiveness that is already yours. Jesus provided for that once and for all on the cross. It's completed. It's done. It's over. Why would we wallow in our sin as though his sacrifice wasn't enough and that somehow we need to pay for it with heaping remorse and guilt upon ourselves? That's not what this table is about. Jesus is really present here today and is prepared to minister his grace to you by affirming his word that's been preached, and by strengthening you in this meal of faith with grace for the path ahead. So come to him today as you would come to your closest friend. For he is a friend for sinners, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And come with the understanding that he will never fail you. And his resources are infinite. He can provide for you like no one else can. So share your struggles with him. Share your doubts and your fears. Ask him by the power of his spirit to help you to put to death those sins that raise their ugly heads in your life. Ask him to give you peace in your soul from the fear and anxiety that you deal with. Ask him for the fruit of the Spirit to be evident in your life and your love 
for your brothers and sisters to grow deeper even as your love for him does. Ask big things of him in faith and expect big results in spiritual fruit. The invitation from Jesus for us today is the same as found in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus also said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Come to the good shepherd today. Let him scoop you up and carry you to the table with his mighty arm. Find in him rest for your soul in the chaos of life. And then go from this table to a world in desperate need of the comforting words of the good news. Be a spokesperson for the comfort and forgiveness found in Jesus. Be a town crier for the stability and permanence found in the word of God. And be a herald for the strength and compassion found in the Good Shepherd. For love has dawned. Love has come. Love is here. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what love has been demonstrated to us in the coming of Christ? To live a life that we couldn't live to make a sacrifice that we can't make and to conquer death and sin that we were hopeless without. And so, Father, as we come to your table today, we come rejoicing in thankfulness, understanding the truth of the gospel and knowing that we are your children. So would you encourage us today, would you minister grace to us today from your word, and from this meal, as we move forward, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.